This week, we continue a series of interviews with participants in the Pedagogies of Care Project. In this episode, we discuss how the use of evidence-based teaching practices can be an effective way of demonstrating that you care about your students and their success. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Dr. Michelle Miller. Michelle is a professor of psychological sciences and a president's distinguished teaching fellow at Northern Arizona University. Dr. Miller's academic background is in cognitive psychology. Her research interests include memory, attention, and student success in the early college career. Michelle is the author of Minds Online, Teaching Effectively with Technology, and has written about evidence-based pedagogy in scholarly as well as general interest publications. She's currently working on her newest book, Remembering and Forgetting in the Age of Technology, What the Science of Memory Tells Us About Teaching, Learning, and Thriving in a Wired World, scheduled as part of the West Virginia University Press Series on Teaching and Learning, edited by Jim Lang. The tentative release date is 2021. She is also a contributor to the Pedagogies of Care project created by authors in this series. Welcome back, Michelle. Hi, it's great to be here. Great to have you back. Today's teas are, I am drinking fresh mint and hot water, which I think is my favorite summer tea of all when the mint is thriving all around here at the house. Sounds nice and refreshing. How about you, John? I'm drinking tea forte, black currant tea. And I'm drinking Scottish afternoon. I haven't quite run out of that yet. We've invited you here to talk about your contribution to the Pedagogies of Care Project and your forthcoming book. Could you start by talking about your contribution to the Pedagogies of Care Project? Right towards the end of the spring semester for many of us, as you know, we in the teaching and learning community and professional development and scholarship of teaching and learning space, we're in just vibrant discussion with one another, just talking each other through the experiences that we were having as part of the pivot to emergency remote instruction, which I think for most of us in higher education, that was a big part of what we did in March all the way through May of 2020. So we had been talking about these, and there's this very vibrant group of authors that have come together under the West Virginia University Press's project, as you mentioned, edited by Jim Lang. And so we had this group, which was already exchanging very rich sets of advice and ideas about where we were going and really talking about how to help. And so under the leadership of Tori Mondelli, who conceived of this whole project, and also Tom Tobin, who has also been a real leader as part of this group, we talked about how can we put together some resources that grow out of the work that we're doing that capitalize on some of the rich conversation and collaboration that's already happening. And whatever format that takes, put that out there into the world so that people can use that. And there's all different ways that it could be utilized. We're not prescribing that, but we really had envisioned something that was open, that was helpful, and that was really contextualized within this moment of real upheaval and crisis and some new directions that many of us are involved in. 
We've gotten some really good feedback. I shared that with the faculty at our campus just a few days ago, and I got about a dozen responses within a couple of hours saying, these resources are really useful. Thanks for sharing. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. So we went through this traumatic switch that was a bit of a struggle for everyone, students and faculty. What can we do now to better prepare for the fall? At the time that we're recording this, we are, for me, about midway through the summer. So it really is starting to get real for many of us what we are going to do in the fall. And we're seeing more and more institutions who are firming up and starting to commit to real plans for what the format of instruction is going to be like, what enrollments are going to be like, and all those kind of locally specific pieces of information that are so important for determining what we're going to be able to do. So what can we do differently to better prepare for the fall semester? First of all, let's honor that what the vast majority of faculty that I've talked to, what we accomplished in such a short space of time in spring, providing instructional continuity, this was amazing. I mean, we really enabled students who, in some cases, they were set to graduate. They were earning their degree in maybe a month or two. And we made it possible for them to get to that finish line through a tremendous amount of ingenuity and hard work on everybody's part. So let's not sell ourselves short. That said, we are headed into a very different environment. And so what I've really suggested in some other things that I've written about and definitely in my Pedagogies of Care project is a focus on what does quality really look like? And for me, being a cognitive psychologist, social scientist, totally acknowledging that that's my perspective, for me, that comes down to aligning with the best of what learning science has to offer. And the neat thing is that we are in an era right now when, number one, we really have converged on a set of principles that are fairly non-controversial. And if not always easy to implement, it's fairly clear what we can be doing. And we have technologies, in some cases, that map onto them very well. They don't do the work for us, but they can really help implement things and make things concrete that we've known in theory for a long time were very, very important. So that's one of the things that I think that we can focus on. So there is that. I've also really emphasized the reevaluation that we won't be able to simply do what we've always done. I think those of us who work in this space are always quite adamant that teaching, say, online or teaching a hybrid course is not a matter of just sort of capturing a lecture. If that were the case, this would be very, very straightforward. We should just lecture all summer, record it, and post it. But that's not what it's really about. So what I think that we can focus on as we do reevaluate in our teaching, what are we trying to accomplish? We can step back and say, well, what do students want to get out of this? And that, I think, can help us winnow down from all the things that we could potentially do. It will help us let go of some things that we will not be able to do and help us find, if not an easy path forward, a more clear one that will allow us to serve our students and also take good care of ourselves during this time. I think anything that helps us figure out what a priority can be in terms of content or goals that we have for our students, but then also methodologies that we'll use and why. I think is key because I think we all need to scale back and be reasonable with ourselves because there is so much to accomplish if we want to do it perfectly, but we just don't have that kind of time. You just said it was halfway through the summer and I almost had a panic attack. Right. Not that I'm counting, but it is actually just about the midpoint through the summer. And, you know, when I started reflecting even more on this pedagogies of care concept, which is the kind of overarching 
ideal that we eventually rallied under as a group. It's occurring to me that that applies to faculty as well. I mean, self-care is a kind of a term that's very cliched and it gets kicked around. But I think that we also really do at this time need to be recognizing that, again, what we did, what we accomplished as faculty in the spring was tremendous, that it did require people working weeks and weeks and weeks, sometimes months, without a break. And although summers are not really traditionally a break or vacation for faculty in any conventional sense of the word, they are a time to recharge. And for many of us, we're also taking care of research obligations and other things that went completely by the wayside for a while out of necessity. So we really do have to balance that too. What's the degree of faculty burnout at this point? What's the degree of faculty receptivity to brand new things? So the things that we are looking at also need to be to ourselves. We need really good communication and collaboration more than ever before, I think, in university communities. I think that's really also the thing that's going to make this fall successful is being able to recognize what faculty have been through and work with that. So yeah, I think that we should recognize this effort. And with that, I also think that evidence-based teaching, incorporating learning science and those principles, that ideally shouldn't be yet another thing on the to-do list. I think that if that's the way it's coming across, then we're going about it the wrong way. I mean, to me, frameworks are always a way to simplify. Again, we have this infinite landscape of things that we could do in any given class, all these different decisions to make and choices. We do have a framework for whether it's learning principles or another framework that should help and simplify. So I think it kind of fits in that big landscape of possibilities as well. That's how I see it. It should help. It shouldn't add to what's becoming a pretty serious burden for faculty. One of the things I really liked in your discussion as an economist is you sounded at times like an economist when you were describing that in terms of this is the most efficient way of helping students reach their goals, that if we use evidence-based methods of teaching, we can let students learn skills more efficiently without wasting as much time and getting closer to that point, making it a form of caring, I think, as you referred to it, that one way of demonstrating your care for students is by using techniques that are more efficient, that provide the largest return on students' time. There's the economics part coming in. So I really appreciated that. And I thought it was a really good argument that we try to emphasize ourselves in our workshops. Oh, thank you. It, you said it better than I possibly could have as a non-economist. But that's exactly the core of that idea, that it is kind to students and perhaps it's kind to faculty as well. We can pre-select some of these avenues and techniques that if you've got an hour to study, and for many of our students, that hour of study might be fractured and jammed in among all kinds of caregiving tasks, that you're going to get more from that. If as a faculty member, you've got four hours that you can devote today to preparing for the fall, and as well, that's going to be <laughs> divided up among other tasks, among your caregiving responsibilities, how can we cut to the chase for faculty so that they can make those choices? So I'm glad that that comes across. I think it's important when we are planning for the fall that we are getting down to those essential elements. Can you talk us through some of the steps that faculty might take to focus in on those essential items and the evidence-based practices so they can have a good framework moving forward, not just for the fall when they might be teaching remotely and that's what they're not familiar with, but all the time. Coming down to essentials and 
here too, I think that that has really resonated with many faculty and also with instructional designers and others tasked with making all of this work. That's what's really resonated is like, what are some of the essentials? And I'll never claim to be able to identify the complete and exhaustive list of exactly what to do. But here's what comes to my mind. I think that perhaps returning even to those learning objectives, which we may have put in a syllabus long ago, and they can be sometimes kind of abstract, but coming back to those and saying, all right, what does it really look like when students have achieved these? Are there any that need to be perhaps modified or dropped altogether? So if we are going to have a semester of really focusing on essentials, this might be a good time to do that. Naturally, we will want to think about the content. And oftentimes we talk about in pedagogy and developing pedagogy, we talk about refocusing away from just coverage of content. That's something that a lot of us get behind. And it's okay to be thinking about, well, what content is going to be in the course? But then really pivoting to look at what's the engagement with that content? How are the students going to engage with the content and how are they going to engage with you? So that's a piece of it, asking yourself that question. And I think then starting to bring in those really concrete logistics. Now, again, typically those of us who talk about pedagogy a lot, we kind of discourage people from talking about very specific tools or technologies until they're really, really clear on some of those high-flown ideals of what they and their students want to get out of the course. But I think in this case, we probably want to hold off on that. We are going to have to say, well, are you going to be expected to teach online but synchronously? And if you want an example of that, the Zoom meetings, which we're all pretty familiar with at this point, where we're in the same time, but maybe you're in a different place. So is that going to be a part of what you do with students? Because that is pretty new to many of us. And if so, there's certain considerations you're going to have to have in mind to say, well, how is that going to work? Especially if you're expected to also be teaching, say, a face-to-face -face course at the same exact time, which I think is going to present challenges. And I think for many of us, it's going to depend on your local institutional context, but I think you can't go wrong right now with setting up a robust online component to your course. I think that with the level of uncertainty we have, or even with individual students, if they're going to need to, say, quarantine or take care of an ill relative or something like that, having some asynchronous, so different time activities and materials online is going to be essential. So I think taking those concerns and saying, all right, what is this physically going to look like? I would typically push that as much, but I think that that's important now. And I think in the preparation for this too, Another kind of bare essential point that I talk about in my resource for a project is media creation. So in some cases, people are going to want to create, say, a set of videos, or let's say they're demonstrating a process. Let's say they're teaching studio art. They might want to have some pretty involved videos or other kinds of demonstration, or perhaps there's not good written material out there that might replace a series of face-to-face -face lectures. Maybe they're going to be wanting to write a fair amount of content or maybe record even <laughs> podcast-style materials. That stuff eats up a lot of time. So I think really being real about what you absolutely need to do in that department and getting started now, that's sort of the wisdom of experience that I would share with folks as well. I think that's really good advice, Michelle. As I'm thinking towards the fall, I made a list of this is absolutely essential. If I don't have this content made, we're screwed if we're online. <laughs> Versus like this stuff does exist out there that I could use. It maybe isn't my favorite. And then there's well-established stuff that's fine or whatever, because it does take a lot of time to write, produce, and plan some of that stuff, even if you're using methods that aren't burdensome. 
where you're not worried about production quality and those kinds of details, it still takes time. You need quiet space. There's a lot of constraints, especially if you're like me and you have kids at home. <laughs> you got to find the quiet time to record the thing. <laughs> so I appreciate the balance there, really thinking logistically a little bit, because if you have a finite amount of time, then you have to prioritize what can get done ahead of time. Right. And you know, it may not be the way to go. And that I'd share with you an experience that I had while right in the thick of the great pivot, the transition to remote instruction. I was talking to a faculty member who does happen to teach studio art. They teach drawing and painting in a small class atmosphere, a very intimate atmosphere that's very hands-on and not somebody who works at my institution. I happen to know them. And she called me up partway through the Great Pivot Week and was distraught. She was really on the verge of tears. And she was saying, well, this goes live next week. I need to somehow carry my course forward, my studio art course. And I just learned that my colleague, the guy down the hall, what he's doing is he's got these videos that come down from the ceiling. And then we have these close-ups on drawing and these techniques. And he's doing all this. I can't do this. I'm a single parent. I'm at home. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. And I said, all right, it doesn't have to look like that. Your colleague may be doing that. It doesn't have to look like that. And I said, all right, what is working in your course? That's another thing you can use to kind of cut to those essentials. So what is the strongest thing? What do your students need right now? She said, well, they're absolutely overwhelmed and I think they need a lot of support. And well, is there any kind of social peer-to-peer -peer support? She said, oh, well, we have since the beginning of the semester, I put them into these pods of three. And so they've been developing these social structures where they consult with each other every week. And so they have ways of communicating with each other in these pre-existing social groups. Do you think that could be useful? I said, yes, go with that. So what your course is accomplishing really well right now is setting an atmosphere where students are talking to each other. I said, well, maybe you can kind of divide and conquer. You can hand off this project to where students are critiquing each other's work in these groups. So definitely kind of double down on that arrangement that you've already put into place. Your colleague down the hall, maybe multimedia is his thing and this is easy for him, but he may be struggling to say, how do we get students to socially support each other, form connections and feel connected to the class, even though it's now in a remote format. To me, that's something to really capitalize on. So I took away a lot from that. I'll be reflecting a lot on that as well. Your quote unquote solution to the challenges we face is going to look different and it really should go with whatever's strongest for you. I think as academics, we kind of say, well, if it's easy, that must be the wrong way to go about things. But sometimes the path of least resistance maps well and aligns well onto what your strengths happen to be and what your students' needs are. Going back to that point, though, about creating media, if you create materials for an online format, you can always use that to support face-to-face -face if by some miracle things return to some sense of normalcy. It's probably not going to, but that material will still be there and will be useful. So a focus on that, I think, is really helpful. And that's what we've been strongly advocating for our faculty as well. Just as long as you don't have specific deadlines. Don't put deadlines, dates, or anything like that in them. Right. See, that's just a practice that is so important to create reusable media. And it's a seemingly small thing. But until you really get into this and get practice, you don't realize how important that is. That, yeah, if you are going to sink the time into that, make it reusable. And that's an important point for reusability. And going back there, I'd like to, once again, we've done this many times, recommend Karen Costa's book on 99 tips for creating simple and sustainable videos. 
It's a really nice resource and it does focus on keeping it simple. Don't do the fancy transitions. Don't do something where a half an hour video is going to take you 30 hours of production time. Keep it so that it's easy for you so that you can keep doing it without imposing a burden that's going to make you stop doing this. Absolutely. And I'm so glad for that recommendation. I went out and got the book myself. I think I'm on tip number 80 as of this morning. So I'm almost there and I'm finding these wonderful, everything from very specific guidelines to much more conceptual things about why you want video in a course to begin with. So yeah, I'm with you on that. It's definitely worth a read and definitely this summer. But maybe also kind of put this into a different focus as well with the focus on creating media and doing so purposefully in a way that is sustainable. Let's not lose sight of the active learning component. So that's something that I've really kind of watched with some concern and definitely some interest as this conversation evolves. So active learning at this point, I mean, people sometimes perceive it as a buzzword, but it is such a robust concept. And I think it's easy at a point where we are kind of saying, well, how can we make all this work in some different formats to lose sight of that? And so we may be creating wonderful videos, instructional videos, or all kinds of things and just merrily perking along with that. But we do need to remember how are students interacting with it, which is why a beautiful film of somebody demonstrating a drawing technique might in some context not even be as valuable as somebody who's having students talk to each other because of that engagement. So I think that too, this is going to be so critical as we see more schools pushing for things like recordings of lectures or even synchronously bringing students in during a live session you're having with other students. I think that we do need to remind people who are in charge of these things that education is just never something you watch. It is something that you do. So it is really tempting to say, let's record everything we can. That'll be equivalent. But active learning is not a luxury that we can just put on hold for a while. It really is. Isn't. And so I'm hoping that we don't see that happen. I think there's a very similar story that's going on with universal design for learning. Another concept I know you've engaged with so much on this podcast and is so important. And I think here too, it's easy to say, well, you know, given all that's going on, maybe we won't have multiple ways of engaging with these great media that we're creating, or maybe we're going to kind of shut down this avenue over here for a little while. And I really hope that doesn't happen. So that's another aspect of this balance between the quality and, and ambitiousness of what we're doing and the feasibility and protecting ourselves as we face another very challenging semester. I think that's a really good reminder about focusing on the learning as the essential element as opposed to the teaching. It's really about setting up the framework and the possibilities for students to learn and designing those activities and making sure that we're spending the time on that rather than all the time on just delivering something. But having those videos can free up time so that if you do meet synchronously, you can engage in more active learning activities rather than just lecturing to students online, which is probably one of the worst ways of structuring synchronous meetings. And if you really want to do a little bit more work, you could use something like PlayPosit, where you embed questions in the middle of video that could be somewhat open-ended and that you could even grade. If you happen to have an institutional license, you can embed it directly in your LMS. So the videos themselves can be made with a a bit of work, a little more interactive, and they can serve as a replacement for lecture that allows for more active learning, I think. Absolutely. 
And I too, I've seen some wonderful examples in practice of that technology. And there's a couple of different ways to do this. So there's multiple tools that allow you to put a retrieval practice or comprehension questions somewhere in the midst of this online lecture, presentation, or video. And what better way to help ensure that students are attentive to them, to give yourself some opportunities on the other end to say, what's the actual level of comprehension that's going on out there? And for students to really solidify and practice the material. That's all bedrock learning science stuff, right? Retrieval, active practice, and so on. And it just takes a little bit of ingenuity to make that one extra step to say, all right, what's the level of interactivity here? And that's something that I hear too from faculty. It's quite reasonable if they have taught purely face-to-face and don't have that level of a firsthand experience with something like online teaching. It's to say, well, how do I know? What's going on out there? And again, there's not a technology that's going to just magically replace the experience of looking at the sea of faces that we experience in a face-to-face class. But think about it. That's one way to do it. Having something like an online gamified quiz like Kahoot, which is currently my favorite quizzing app that's out there. I ran this just the other day quite successfully in a remote synchronous environment. So there too, that could help give you that information right away about what concepts are they struggling with. And having other ways of reaching to students, if not talking to them individually in something like a meeting, a phone call, or even a text chat, having some other ways to kind of figure out on the ground what's the mood level of the course, how are we feeling about things, and are there individual students who are struggling for one reason or another who we can reach out to? One way in which I saw interactive videos being used was several years ago, I took a MOOC on behavioral economics that Dan Ariely had put together, and he'd often discuss experiments, but he set up the experiment and describe what the experiment did. But then the video pauses and you're asked to predict what the outcome would be. And that type of prediction is a really useful evidence-based technique that you can even do with videos if you can embed the questions in the middle of them. And I thought that was really useful. And it's something I'm going to be trying to do a bit this fall. But in terms of evidence-based learning, could you talk a little bit about some of the main principles that people should be using to design their fall classes? What should people be focusing on? So when I talk about bringing down just a vast literature of learning science, and I'm going to necessarily boil this down to what I think are my favorites and the most applicable. So of course, retrieval practice. I think if there's one success story that our field has had, I mean, it goes back even over 20 years that we got the data, determined how this principle works and started flowing it out to practitioners in the field. It's this one. So that is, of course, the principle that when we actively pull something out of memory, it increases our ability to remember it in the future. And of course, we naturally think of tests, exams, and assessments as the avenue for this, but there's lots of other ways that it can take place. So I always love to direct people to the website retrievalpractice.org. I'm not affiliated with it, but I think they have a wonderful compendium of ideas for how to bring this into classrooms at all different levels, all different disciplines, and so on. So if you don't have retrieval practice, quizzing, students actively talking about what they remember, great time to bring that in. So you can't go wrong with retrieval practice. Then, of course, the principle of what's the timing of your study, so space study. And pretty much by any measure, when we spread out student engagement with material, again, whether it's through quizzing or solving problems, you name it, you're going to get more out of that efficiency when it is spread over time. And I think that this is one of the real unsung benefits of online and technology-assisted learning, even among people who are saying, oh, I'm just using the basic learning management shell to organize some materials and students turn their stuff in online. 
I mean, let's not sell that short for how powerful that is for being able to stagger deadlines, change the timing of when we are getting students to be working on different aspects of the course and so on. So while we don't necessarily always want to bombard students with deadline after deadline, we do have to be mindful and help them kind of organize multiple deadlines. This is something that we could definitely build in as a design principle. So just to be very blunt about it, we always discourage people from the two midterms and a final course design. That's something that a lot of us have experienced. It could work, a course like that can be fine, but from a memory and learning standpoint, that's really not ideal. We want students engaging quite frequently. And then the practice. So the practice of the skill. So that advice bring that up again about it's not all about content coverage. It's about practicing the application of the content knowledge that they're getting. We can almost always stand to build in more of these. I don't think I've ever seen a course where I've said, you know, you really need to present more content to the students. Don't have them solving problems so often. I have never seen that in practice. I will just go on the record and say that. So if we want students to be doing X, Y, and Z, and again, go back to the front page of your syllabus and remind yourself what you're hoping they'd be able to do at the end of the course. If we want them to do that, what are the opportunities for them to actually try and try in small bites? In my contribution to the Pedagogies of Care project, I give a very brief example of this in my own courses. So one of the things you have to do, bread and butter skills as a psychologist, is you have to be able to look at a psychology research study and kind of break down the structure of it. So no matter what's being studied, there's probably, we call them independent variables and dependent variables. So things that are being manipulated, things that are being measured. And students have to develop that as a thinking skill. And it's really not easy. <laughs> so I will oftentimes have them in, say, a research methods course very frequently as part of whatever we happen to be doing. I'll say, okay, here's a really short description of a study. Maybe it's an abstract or just a description. You pull out for me before we talk about anything else about this study. You tell me, what are the independent variables? What are the dependent variables? So it's something that traditionally we'd always put on an exam but we didn't always have students repeatedly practicing. So knowing that students absolutely had to master this before they got out of my research methods course, that's what I did. So practice, and that kind of segues back into that active learning principle, which yeah, you cannot go wrong with students getting involved. Once again, I don't think I've ever seen a course where I said, you the professor need to get out there front and center. Don't emphasize the students so much. So they need to be doing the thinking, the practicing, and quite frankly, the work. That's where the benefits come from. So with those, the retrieval practice, space study, practice of higher order thinking skills, and a real active learning orientation, I think that that's something you can take to the bank as a faculty member. You could build on that, but if you start with those, you're probably going down the right path. And I remember reading this really good book that talked about how using computer-mediated instruction or using the tools within the LMS allows you to provide students with lots of feedback and lots of retrieval practice without necessarily increasing the burden on you as the instructor. I think that book was called Minds Online, yeah. Teaching Effectively with Technology. I feel like I might know that author. I'm not sure. <laughs> yes. And thank you very much. It's what I was trying to go for. So thank you. It is wonderful that people are finding many of those points really relevant right now. So yes, thank you so much for pointing that out. I think it's great. <laughs> I think one thing that I've been thinking about in terms of having more remote time than maybe in-person time is that I often provide a lot of structured activities around retrieval practice and space practice in my face-to-face -face class. And if students are working more independently when they're working remotely, I'm not there to... <laughs> 
facilitate it synchronously, that structure needs to really be in place, maybe even more so than when you're in face-to-face class, that they have that structure and that they know they should be doing those things on a regular basis. Of course, we should be reminding them to do these things on their own as well. But I think focusing a little bit more on having that structure or those reminders in our courses when they might be remote is actually really, really imperative. Right. And those are learning skills and abilities and principles that are going to serve our students well, no matter what they study or what they may do after they leave a course. And it's kind of neat. There's some indication from the research literature that particularly for students who come in who are not from an advantaged background, that when they're exposed to courses, which, as you say, they remind them, okay, do this kind of practice. Here's what you should be doing. Here's why you should be doing it that that benefit really does extend not just into that course, but into future ones, because students can pick these things up on their own. So if we do really want to be thinking about how can we set our students up for success, no matter what the future holds, I think that's a pretty high ideal that we can work towards. So yet another reason to incorporate these powerful practices and perhaps, yeah, to talk about how students can adopt them no matter what. For those faculty who are struggling to prepare their courses, what are some heuristics that they could be using in terms of focusing their time where it would give the most benefit? This is something that has definitely been on my mind, both for my own preparation and to share with others. So heuristics, shortcuts, and helpful hints and approaches. So I talked earlier about looking at what you consider to be your strongest points as an instructor and kind of the highlights of the course, the things that you know are memorable, that advance learning, that you feel really strong and competent with, with the caveat that, yeah, we do want to make sure that those do align with student learning. I think that that's a great place to start. Say, okay, what's the great parts of my course? Forget about what anybody else is doing. What do I really want to use? And putting those front and center. If you have a short activity that's working great, maybe that's something that could be done every week or somehow extended. But the flip side of that is this, and this is another that I didn't invent this. This is something you'll see repeated time and again in teaching advice, which is the pinch point heuristic. Flipping it around and saying, oh my gosh, if there is one thing that students are struggling with conceptually, or it's something that I know they should be doing and they don't do it to the level that they need to, that you focus your efforts, kind of train your sights on that piece of it, especially in the discipline I teach, psychology. I mean, there's so many fun things we could talk about with psychology, and it's easy to kind of spend a whole lot of time and effort shooting the videos or setting up the learning activities online and making a quiz that's about something that's just cool to learn about. But that can't squeeze out, oh my gosh, everybody gets unconditioned stimulus and conditioned stimulus wrong. And they do it every single year and I know it's going to happen. So I need to be pulling out those things. You know what, if I'm going to spend the hours on a video or an extra module or creating an interactive quiz with multimedia, spend the time on the places where students are struggling. People who work with UDL also talk about, well, here's where you want to be especially conscientious to ensure that you do have the multiple means of representation and expression is around these areas that are really, really tough for students. So what's working great? Where's the point where you just say, if I could wave a wand and make one thing happen, that's what I would do. So really looking at those two tracks. So that's one heuristic. I think as well, I'll share with you something that I'm working on for my own courses big caveat that this is my courses. I will probably not be teaching a very large set of classes just because of the vagaries of course assignments. So I know I have that a little bit easier, but here's what I'm going to do as a framework. I'm kind of thinking of 
splitting it up so each week students have a set of kind of general categories that they have to meet. They have to do some type of work or meet some kind of expectations in that area. So I might, for example, have a column that corresponds to engaging with classmates about the topics for the week and then a set of options for that week. So maybe you came to a face-to-face -face class, maybe you participated in an online discussion, and maybe there's even a third option that I haven't thought about yet. So just to really simplify, say, okay, check off in that area. What's another column or category that you have to participate in? You have to do some type of demonstrating mastery of material or not quite sure what I'll call it yet, but that could correspond to taking a quiz or maybe playing a Kahoot in class or playing a Kahoot remotely online. And I'll probably also have a column that constitutes working towards whatever the term project is. And I'll give them a set of choices again of what that term project can be like. But I am a very big believer in if you're going to have a big project, that there's lots and lots of formative steps to that. So I tend to take that to extremes. And every week or so, students are doing something to show that they are moving towards and making progress in that area. So it is still a little bit general around the edges, but to me, that really helped me feel like I had a handle on how am I going to manage choices? How am I going to manage multiple formats and manage uncertainty with that focus on the purpose? Why do we have this due this week? Well, because it falls into these different categories, all of which are important for your learning in this class. So those are a couple of the shortcuts that I would share. One of the other things you talk about in your contribution to the pedagogies of care is the importance of getting help when you need it or where you need it. Could you talk a little bit about that? So this whole idea of getting help, I mean, it's very simple on the face of it. I'm a faculty member. I want to do this thing in my class. I don't know how. I call somebody. Magic happens. And in reality, in higher education, what I've seen over and over at different institutions is that that is not a direct path at all between support, assistance, and collaboration and the faculty member and the time and place when they need that. And so I think that this is going to be an issue that if it's not on people's minds now in leadership and pedagogy circles, if it's not on their minds now, it will be in six months to a year. I think that this is going to be one of the differences between institutions that make it through this fall in good shape and those that really struggle is what are those processes? So for faculty members, I'm really encouraging them to say, all right, where are the points in this process where you could get some kind of assistance that either you invest some time and you get the capacity to do something very efficiently in the future, say like a workshop on how to do sustainable videos, or how do you actually find somebody to share the load, actually delegate some of the work. For faculty, they should be reflecting on that. But at that point, that's where things are going to get complicated, depending on what the systems are in place at their institutions. So first of all, I think that institutions don't always, and faculty ourselves, we don't always make that distinction. When I say I want help, do I mean I want you to point me to a great website or a book I can read? Do you want me to spend half a week coming to a workshop series? Or are you going to get in there and say, okay, you have the content, I can build these quizzes. You have a script for what you want to do for a complex video, I can shoot that for you, caption it and put it online. So what kind of help are we talking about here? And then figuring out how do you approach your institution to do that? So I've just really been continually surprised as I do visit different institutions. I mean, almost universally, there are these amazing instructional designers and other people who just devote their professional lives 
to teaching and learning, they're up on all the new technology. They know what, what was the great new video editing software that just came out last week. You know, they're the ones who have that. And oftentimes there's a disconnect there. People don't know how, they feel inhibited, or maybe they've been actively inhibited. Some institutions say, say well, there's a process and we're going to put a lot of strings on how we're going to divvy up these resources. Others actually discourage instructional design and similar staff from even talking to faculty. And there's a, a little kind of social piece to it as well. I think just because we haven't yet fully incorporated this into what we do, that it's almost like, well, who makes the first move? If I'm an instructional designer and I know here's these courses over here that I could be helpful with, you don't just email people out of the blue and likewise faculty, they say, well, should I call the support line for this more complex project that I need help with or not? So I think that institutions will hopefully be sorting that out, but presuming that there isn't a giant revolution in how we have collaboration between instructional designers and faculty, being aware of that and at least having something very clear in your mind for what you're asking for, the worst that can happen usually is that somebody says no, but to have any chance, you at least have to know what specifically do you want? I think knowing that's really helpful too, because if you start talking to faculty, for example, in other disciplines that might have a similar goal or they need a similar structure in place, you could actually work with those faculty to put the structure in place and share the structure, swap out the content or whatever too. Sometimes we don't think about those kinds of collaboration. Right. And what you're describing, that's something that is kind of non-traditional and new. We come into this with a very strong tradition of my class is my class and a kind of an ethos as academics that you do things the hard way and you do them by yourself. But maybe this can be an impetus for us to really be getting creative with swapping even things like a syllabus to say, well, you know, maybe the way that I've gone about this, you can actually springboard this, even if it is, as you said, in a different discipline. Maybe we'll even see faculty putting together some more unconventional team teaching arrangements. Traditionally, we know what team teaching is. We were experts in the same subject and we're going to create this class that sort of articulates or we're going to pass it back and forth. But maybe I should be collaborating with somebody from another area of, of psychology do they have to be in my subdiscipline to just come in and say, help me with discussion forums if I'm not very good at that? And then I can come into their class and help them with synchronous video if they need help with that. Maybe if we have to, we will do it that way. So if that comes out of all of this, I think that would be a great benefit. And I want to say I have been really hesitant and cautious about engaging in this narrative of the silver linings and, oh, isn't this a wonderful experience? We'll learn all these new methodologies of teaching. We'll come out of this. We'll all love online teaching and be fluent with it. I don't think that that's an appropriate message for faculty right now. I think we do need to recognize that this has been somewhere between disruptive and catastrophic for most of us career-wise and not imply that we should all just constantly be thrilled to be learning new things. There are so many new things that we could be learning right now, but fall is coming and we only have so much time. So I do want to put that out there and that's something that I think is an important thread that needs to be, and I hope it will be talked about more as the dialogue unfolds. But even without saying, hey, this is a great time to do new things, we can recognize that there will be innovation that happens. And it's already happened. We've seen it happen. And while this may not be a silver lining, I know in our teaching center, we've seen a lot of faculty who I didn't even know existed on our campus. 
Because as Jessamine Newhouse has talked about, people have broken down some of those barriers where they think they have to do everything themselves and they're more willing to request help when they desperately need help in ways that they weren't willing to do before. Absolutely. I think that Jessamine Newhouse has been such a clear and fresh voice on some of these development issues. She's absolutely right. She talks about it in her own style, which is totally unique to her. But it really gets it across that we're Professor Smarty Pants and we are not used to (laughs) collaborating, working together or just saying, I don't know. So I guess, too, we can also say, even if we don't formally work in a teaching and learning center, if there's something that you know that your colleague does not and that you can help with, get out there, volunteer it. And let's all really do this in perhaps a new spirit where it's not all just about, well, here's what I know and you don't know it and I'm going to feel <laughs> uncomfortable coming in. Let's have a real reset in terms of really open sharing. It's not about playing the game of who knows more or who figured out the latest thing. It's really about serving the students and doing so in a way that we can sustain what promises to be a, a pretty challenging semester. These have all been really great tips and things to think about as we move towards the fall, as the fall moves towards us. Maybe it's a better way of thinking about it. (laughs) I think that's a frighteningly accurate turn of phrase there. (laughs) I want to make sure that we get to talk a little bit about your new book, though. Can you share a little sneak preview? Oh, sure. And this book, of course, well predates the era that we're in, but it's been something that I've wanted to write about for a very long time. And then when I was able to make the connection to James Lang and to his series, I think it was really meant to be. So it is about memory and technology. So much has been written in the popular press and a little bit in the scholarly press as well about cognitive processes and how those change or not in the presence of technology. And with a frame for teachers, of course, so those of us who want to make uh, even just very specific policies, like should I allow note-taking in class on laptops or not, to people who are really interested in this broader sense of teaching and learning in our contemporary era. So what I'll be talking about in the book are issues such as, well, first of all, what do we need to know about how memory works in the first place as a teacher or a person who is really into learning? So what do we now know about how memory works and how it can be improved? I also talk about why anybody should even care about memory, because that's one of the angles of technology as well. This question of, well, do you really need to know anything in the age of Google? And there are people on both ends of that spectrum, probably no surprise that I come in somewhere in the middle of saying, on the one hand, it's really important to be able to find information when you need it. And yes, we absolutely should be de-emphasizing memorization for its own sake. However, we also know from current research that memory in a subject area helps us think in that area. So there will be something for everybody in that section of the book as well. And then we will talk about what is the effect of having something like a smartphone always at our fingertips. Does that create any kind of global change in memory? Does it change our memory for specific things that we might be doing or thinking about while we're using that technology? And how, again, can we turn this to our advantage as lifelong learners ourselves and also for our students? Now, of course, you can't talk about any of this without talking about attention itself. And so while it's not a book about attention and distraction per se, we'll talk about, all right, well, what's the flip side of that? And so how basically can we take all the advantages that technology has to offer for building memory and de-emphasize all the things that it does to offset and degrade our memories and come out of this with the best of both worlds? I will get into a little bit the end of the book as well into some of these bigger questions of how is memory itself changed 
when we live in a technological era when so much of our lives are recorded. And what does that say about things like generational differences or what memory might look like decades from now? So I'm absolutely loving exploring all those themes. And I think they'll be interesting for anybody who's in the arena of teaching and learning, but also with a lot of practical tips about, again, how we can reap all the benefits that technology can offer for memory and for learning. You'll have a lot of disappointed listeners to know that that doesn't come out until 2021, right? Good things take time. And yes, we will see. It is a work in progress. And although we definitely have all the themes and all the ideas nailed down, it's something I'm working on as we speak. So that's part of why I'm so excited about the project. But yes, I got to finish it first. We're definitely excited for it to come. We always wrap up by asking, what's next? I am, as many of your listeners probably are by the time this comes out, absolutely in the thick of redesigning my own courses for fall. Without getting into too many of the specifics, my institution has kind of laid out a set of parameters that they want us to meet. And so I'll be re-envisioning my courses. And to practice what I preach, I'm going to try to flow that out as much as possible to my colleagues, both locally in my own department, my own college at my institution and also nationally. So I'm kind of looking at some different ways that I can continue to engage people in this and share out what I'm learning as we go along. And I'm also pretty excited to be preparing some even more in-depth materials for some institutions who are looking for help in exactly this type of thing, how to get faculty interested in this whole topic of flexible teaching, some specific techniques that are useful for what I'll call flexible teaching, key resources, things to do, not to do, and so on. So I'm excited to be coming back at it on all cylinders in the fall and looking forward to engaging students in all the different formats that we now have and seeing where it takes us. So that's what's next for me. Well, thank you. This has been wonderful talking to you again. We've always enjoyed these conversations and our listeners have very much appreciated them. Oh, thank you. It's always really helpful to know, too, that you're not alone. We're all going through the same kinds of contemplations. And so thanks for sharing some of your own stories about developing and planning for the fall, too. Thank you as well. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on tfortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.